Get ready for Crack the Customer Code, your audio guidebook for creating incredible customer journeys. Hey, Adam. Hey, Jeannie. How's it going today? I've, that's why we're here. I just want to find out about you. We're just going to chit chat. I am great. Fantabulous, actually. You know, I think it's really important that we also engage with our listeners and find out from them how they're doing and show them empathy and design this podcast around them. Don't you I agree? I think that is a fantastic idea. So we try to do that. We really do. But I think all of us could use some tips and tricks and just some reminders about how to show the people that we're serving more empathy in what we design for them. And that's why I'm so excited about this interview with Ruben, Ruben Ocampo, who is a Chicago guy. He's a service design master. He uh, has so much wisdom in this episode. So I'm so excited to share it with our listeners. Well, right. Cause we always talk about journey maps and everything like that. But when you really think about what, uh, you know, Ruben is an expert in, which is design thinking, it's, mm -hmm. it's a more technical process. It's a more defined process, how you approach design creation and how you center it around the end user and things like that. And uh, he had some really good takeaways and some interesting points in this interview. Yeah. I think everybody's going to learn from this one. Even if you think you know what design thinking is, even if you think you use service design every day in your customer experience work, really listen to this one because there's some wisdom here that I think we can all apply to the work we do every day in service to our customers. So what do you, what do you think? Should we jump in here? Let's hear about Ruben. <laughs> Ruben is a designer and strategic facilitator who helps leaders imagine and enact visionary change by engaging them in a powerful and meaningful dialogue with customers, workforce, and other stakeholders in the value chain. Having received master's degrees in both business administration and human-centered design, Ruben's unique approach combines different ways of creating and interpreting shared meaning. Ruben has worked across several sectors, including government, which we talk about a little bit, which is fascinating, manufacturing, hospitality, health, and financial services. He teaches master's level courses in management and design and has spoken at design conferences and seminars in the U.S. and abroad. Ruben, we're so happy you're with us today. Thanks for joining us. Thank you for having me, Jeannie and Adam. Uh, Ruben, so great to have you, and I am ready to jump right in. And first thing I would just love to hear, and I'm sure our audience would as well, how you ended up in this work around innovation, service design, training. How did you get here? Ah, this is a really interesting question. I have a background in product design. I was educated as an industrial designer, did a master's in something called human-centered design at the IIT Institute of Design here in Chicago. And after working a little bit as a consultant doing product design at a small uh, consulting firm, I got my first corporate job. And back then, this is the early 2000s, I realized that it was really hard for someone with a design background to advance their career in that kind of environment. I would say that has changed a lot in the last 10 years with you know, the, the growing interest in design. But at the time, I decided to go back to grad school and, and get an MBA. And while I was doing my MBA studies, I had the epiphany that this thing called strategy, uh, I call it business strategy or organizational strategy, 
was very analytics driven. It was very formulaic. And I believed that it could benefit greatly from uh, some of the tools and mindsets from design. So I, I found my sweet spot in this space that I called innovation strategy, which is where I say, for me anyway, the worlds of design and business collide beautifully. That's awesome. I love the way you say that. And I think the terms, especially in the world's the three of us kind of inhabit around customer experience and design and all these places. I think the terms design thinking and service design specifically, they get tossed around a lot lately. (laughs) And sometimes people don't really get what they mean. And they say, we should really apply design thinking to this. And they're not really sure what that is. They just think that means thinking big, you know. Um, Mm -hmm. So can you share what you think service design is, like your Ruben's definition of it, and how it helps both customers and companies alike? Sure. Uh, I would say service design, to put it in the simplest terms, for me anyway, is about making sure that whatever vision we have, whether it's for a better product or a better service or a better experience, doesn't just stay at great ideas and beautiful pictures. So the field of service design does all the dirty grinding work of making sure that organizations have the capabilities, you know, technical, human uh, skills to bring those things to life. So I think where service designers go a bit farther than designers used to is in not just saying, here's some wonderful concepts, go and execute them, but actually getting inside the organization and figuring out ways to bring those innovations to life uh, sustainably. Uh, So that's service design. Now, as far as design thinking, if I can give you kind of like my two-minute history lesson on that term, uh, (laughs) the first person that that I know used the term design thinking, it's kind of modern-day polymath, um, Herb Simon. He was a professor at Carnegie Mellon University back in the 60s in a number of different disciplines. And at some point, he said that we humans have three ways of solving problems. One of them is uh, basically uh, pretty straightforward. It's kind of like causation leads to uh, inclusion. You define a problem, you have defined a solution. For example, if you are using your printer and it's not printing, the moment that you diagnose the problem, you have figured out the solution. If you say, oh, it ran out of paper, now you know what the solution is. Oh, it ran out of ink. Oh, there's a paper jam. You know what the solution is. He said there's a second one, which is where you have a limited set of choices and pick the one that is best for you. So I have A, B, and C options. I have different variables within each one, and I can pick one of them. He said the third one is design thinking, which is where I don't have solutions readily available to me because I don't have a clear definition of the problem in front of me. So, uh, so problem definition is as important as problem solution because the moment that you define the problem, you're, you're giving yourself a direction on, on where you're going to go. So I would say design thinking is about thinking about the future as being something other than the past. Both define the problem and come up with a solution because those problems and solutions are not readily available to you. So now that's historically. About 10 years ago, I believe it was Tim Brown. Yeah, Tim Brown, one of the co-founders of IDEO, wrote a seminal article on Harvard Business Review. Basically, what he said in that article is that us designers have this methodology called human-centered design, which we traditionally use for the design of products and services, which is what we were trained to do. And it's all about building empathy through observation for designing for. And what design thinking does 
democratizes both that philosophy and those methods. It says at the end of the day, any one of us, even if we don't have the title of designer, we're designing solutions for someone. If I'm an HR person in a company and I'm designing HR policies, that is because I'm trying to influence a human being to act in a certain way. Uh, you know, same thing if I'm, if I'm designing incentives. If I'm trying to do something to move people through a line into a stadium, I'm, we're always trying to influence behaviors in some way. So he said anyone who's trying to do something like that can, can benefit from these mindsets and tools. Uh, from human-centered design, and that's where design thinking. I love the idea of like not trying to find a solution to in the same way as finding the problem. And I think I think about this a lot in terms of, you know, you think about how fast the world has moved in the last few decades, and specifically, you know, the last ten years. It's just phenomenal how much has changed and how we we as human beings interact completely differently than we did 10 years ago with all the technology and resources that we have. And so design thinking and specifically human-centered design and all of these ideas, really it's about, it's about identifying, to me, um, it's about identifying what, what kind of the problem solving is, not necessarily the problem, <laughs> if that makes sense. Because I think that's the challenge that we have right now looking towards the future is we don't even know what problems we're going to have or what challenges we need to overcome. So what we need to figure out is what are the best ways to solve problems? What are the best ways to design solutions for human beings regardless of the challenge? So that's, I, mm -hmm. you just got me thinking like that. But I, even as a parent, I think about that. Like we, we have no idea what the jobs of the future are going to be. And so now we have to train our next generation completely differently than any generation before them because we don't know, we can't tell them like, here's a car engine that will be pretty much the same in 10 years because that could be totally false. So now we have to teach them how to be problem solvers, even if they don't know what the problem is. So it's, I think it's just really exciting, but it's also super challenging in today's world. So I don't know if you have any thoughts on that, but I just... It, got my wheels turning. Uh, I do. There's uh, one of the former heads of, of design for Microsoft said that designers strive as much in framing problems as we do in, in creating solutions for those problems. I think one of the things that happens is, and it happens a lot now, is that we, because we're trying to cope with all the change that is happening, we're jumping into conclusions and we just want to solve. And sometimes solutions fall short because we're not fully understanding the problem that we're trying to solve. Or, or fully agreeing to what part of the problem we're trying to solve. Uh, one of the things about design is that we have, we have this beautiful tool called prototyping. Basically says, if, if you think that you have an idea of what problem you're trying to solve, create a very low fidelity, cheap and fast version of a solution or a part of a solution that you can put in front of that end user and test those assumptions, uh, as opposed to just going straight into investing millions of dollars and, and Mm -hmm. and, and getting all the machinery going to, to put something out to the world that may or may not solve anything. Uh, and, and, and that happens all the time. I'm doing a lot of work in city innovation now, coaching cities on how to use prototyping to their advantage. And that's one of the epiphanies that, that city officials have is that they put so many quote-unquote solutions out to the world and then they blame the citizens for not using them or for not engaging with them appropriately. But in reality, all the assumptions that were loaded into those solutions were never tested to begin with. Mm -hmm. um, 
But what's happened with design thinking, in my opinion, is that uh, that term and that philosophy and those methods have been bastardized uh, a lot. And what it ends up happening is that people are fascinated by ideas in large organizations. So they equate the term design thinking to a better, a better way of running brainstorming sessions or a different, a newer way, a fresher way of running brainstorming sessions. And it all becomes about running workshops to generate ideas. And that loses about, I would say, 99% of the power of, of what design and design methods and a design philosophy can actually do for organizations. So I have a tactical question or a more, more of an approach question. When you're thinking about the solution, when you're working on design, where do you put constraints in? And what I mean by that is, do you start with the constraints in mind or do you, do you start with, this is the ideal solution, now let's go deal with the reality? That's a great question, Adam. I think there's constraints all along the way. So uh, usually if you're dealing with a really big, you know, let's call it social technical problem. So it's got a technical element like the printer example I gave, but it's got this human element, which is very fuzzy uh, and ambiguous. Uh, one of my former professors had this, this beautiful term uh, that, he, that he coined uh, related to problem framing. Or imagine that when you're trying to frame a problem, you, you're facing a big fuzzy cloud. and You're inside that cloud, so you don't know where the edges of the cloud are, how far you are from the edges, if you're in the middle or towards the side. And he said, rather than trying to figure out and map out the entire cloud, because that's what, when we do that, we fall into paralysis, analysis paralysis. He says, just start cutting cubes out of the cloud. Basically, start just drawing a cube around you and ask yourself, is this a problem big enough that I want to solve? Do I understand it? Do I want to expand it? So I think we start creating constraints even when you were uh, framing a problem. I would say I love the idea of unconstrained ideation for the sake of generating ideas. But once we go from generating ideas to talking about how we're going to uh, roadmap those ideas or prioritize which of these, those ideas we're going to execute, at that point, we better be introducing constraints because otherwise, we're just having a, a feel-good exercise of unconstrained ideation. And as we know, you know, we don't have unconstrained resources or unconstrained time to, to bring some of those things to life. Uh, but I would say that that idea of introducing constraints uh, in, the in, the in the design world or in the human-centered design, design thinking, whatever you want to call it, those constraints uh, are this healthy tension between three lenses that you're applying. One of them is the human lens. We call it desirability. You know, will these make people's lives better? Will they want to... Um, engage with this solution. Feasibility, it's the technical lens. Can we make this happen? Do we have the capabilities to bring it to life? Uh, and viability, is this commercially something that, that will be beneficial or do we have a way of these either breaking even or making money? Because in the past, I would say the human lens was not regularly applied and I would say viability was the main constraint that would be introduced to the selection of solutions. I like that a lot because I think you're right. It's really easy to get really um, into the idea of kind of that totally unrestricted ideation. And it's so easy to end up with like a zillion things <laughs> that you can't necessarily execute. And so then people just go, ah, I can't do any of it. Um, and, you know, I really want you to touch on, if you don't mind, some of the work you've been doing both 
here in Chicago as well as in Bogota, Colombia. And mm-hmm. around that idea, um, particularly, you know, I would love to hear you explain it, but I also, I think it's so interesting to apply this, these themes to cities, to organizations that are not traditionally kind of operating in this, in this way. So can you share a little bit about the work you're doing? Sure. Um, on the city side, I've been doing work this year with Bloomberg Philanthropies out of New York. Uh, this is the foundation that, that was set up by the former mayor of New York, Michael Bloomberg. So it goes without saying that they do a lot of work in, in government and city innovation and in really pushing people in city halls to embrace a different way of thinking and thinking about the big complex problems that they know exist but may not have the resources or or really the, the I don't know, the mental capacity to, to go on and try to tackle. So here's an interesting thing. They run a, an annual competition called Mayor's Challenge, where basically every year they pick one region somewhere in the world. So the first year, 2013, it was here in the U.S. Then they did it one year in Europe, one year in Latin America. And they invite cities to submit applications for uh, grants to solve very big, complex problems that they couldn't solve on their own. So Bloomberg would provide both funding and uh, some capabilities, some, some resources to help them work through that solution. And through that process, what would happen is you would end up with five cities. One of them would win a grant prize here in the U.S. That's $5 million. And then the other four would get $1 million each and some coaching to go and implement their solution. After running that, that contest or that competition for three years, they realized that a lot of times they were solved, they were going straight into implementing solutions that were not fully thought out. Like I said before, they, they were loaded with assumptions that had not been tested. They didn't even know if, if the technology that was required would integrate well with other technologies that, that, that the cities were using. So this year they did something slightly different. It came back to the U.S. and they said, instead of going from hundreds of applications to the five finalists, we're going to choose uh, 35 champion cities, they call them. And they're going through something called the champions phase, which is a six-month period where they each get a budget of $100,000 and a coach. Uh, I'm coached to three cities in the U.S. to test their, their ideas, to make prototypes and test the assumptions that, that are baked into that original idea that they submitted the application with. And at the end of the process, they have to resubmit the application. So the judges are looking at how much the idea has changed and evolved based hmm. on, the, on the prototypes that they have created and the tests that they have run. And those tests have to include citizens. They cannot just be kind of closed-door tests. It's been amazing for me to work with cities and, and see them kind of see the light bulb go off over their head when they realize that they were not thinking about citizens really well or that the idea in its original inception was not really meant to, was not really going to solve the problem they identified, but they've pivoted that idea in a new direction. So that's the kind of work that I'm doing in, in the city innovation space. That's very cool. And I like how some of the judgment is around how much the idea has changed because they want to make sure that it can actually evolve over time, right? Absolutely. I mean, a lot of the judgment actually is about how much the ideas have evolved because what they don't want is for people to think that they 
they got it right the first time, right? Mm-hmm. That whatever they submitted the application with was a slam dunk. Well, and it's ironic, isn't it, that we have to tell people who are serving in, you know, cities and governments that they have to think about the citizens. <laughs> yeah. You know, like, oops, we forgot but that part. think about them, but engage, engage with them. Yeah. Engage in a dialogue. Make them part of the solution. Right, right. Wow, really right. cool stuff. And we see this in organizations, right? The leadership doesn't understand the uh, front lines, the quote-unquote citizenry, citizenry of the organization. And I think there's no reasonable expectation that governments really know what the citizens want without asking and without digging into it. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. We still live in a world where we think we have to, uh, as the experts, we have to have all the right answers. Otherwise, we make fool of ourselves. Uh, as opposed to saying, as, as an expert, my job is to have all the right questions and, and go and ask those questions of the people that we're serving. Mm-hmm. I love it. Well, that's a mic drop right there. As experts, <laughs> we, need to, we need to have the right questions. Well, thank you so much, Ruben. This has been fantastic. And uh, let us know, let our uh, listeners know, where can they find you? Where can they connect with you? All that good stuff. Excellent. Um, well, my company is called Conic. C-O-N-I-C, and the website is conicgroup.com. Before we get off of the line, I know that Jeannie had asked about this this program in Colombia. It's called Transformed, uh, and the way that you can find it online is trans-form-ed. We're playing a little bit with the word transformed because we're trying to do several things that are transformational in nature. And that is a program that we're planning to run in Bogota in February of 2019, where we're basically taking leaders out of their traditional comfort zone uh, and taking them to a place where there's a lot of change happening so that we can uh, learn from those change makers in that context, have really uh, profound conversations about the nature of that change and reflect on what we can bring that for ourselves. So that's a program that we're framing around the topics of identity, conflict, and sustainability. Yeah. And going to Bogota in February from Chicago sounds pretty good to me. I'm just throwing that out there. <laughs> that was a bit intentional in our part. I wouldn't lie to you. <laughs> <laughs> nice, nice. That's such a cool program. Well, we'll, we'll make sure all of that is also in the uh, show notes as well so people can reach out to you. And I assume they can find you on LinkedIn. Anywhere else? They can find me on LinkedIn, Twitter. Uh, R Ocampo one is my uh, Twitter handle, and we also have an Instagram account for uh, for Transformed. Excellent, excellent. Well, I can't wait for all of that to happen as well. So, thank you so much for sharing all this wisdom with us and all the really cool stuff you're doing. And uh, thanks for coming on the show. It was great to have you. Thank you for having me. This was great fun. Uh, thanks so much, Ruben. So, Jeannie. Yes, sir. Have you considered applying design thinking to the experience you provide your end user or your partner? So this is all about you. (laughs) Well, I'm working my best to make it that way. Yes. (laughs) Doing my darndest. Are you saying I don't have empathy for my partner and co-host here? Is that what you're saying? I would never. That I don't design the experience (laughs) for you? (laughs) I wouldn't necessarily say it that way, but sure. Since you said it, okay. Oh, I know. I'm sure there's more I could do to show you empathy and to design, you know, with 
you more in mind and more engaged. <laughs> well, emp- empathy is not the entire experience. It is only a portion of the experience. Right. Right. There's right. things like workload and, <laughs> you know, doing for others, Jeannie, I think is really important. <laughs> <laughs> Well, I think my favorite thing that Ruben said was about the cloud, about designing, like thinking that you're in the middle of a cloud. And if you try to design that, then it's like too fluffy, basically. <laughs> he didn't say that. I'm <laughs> saying that. Is that your word? <laughs> too fluffy? I'm going to say, Jeannie, get your head out of the clouds. I thought it was so great how thinking about like, think about the one little box that you're in and what can you do there? Or is that a challenge that you can overcome? And I think that's one of the challenges that we have in any sort of customer experience design or service blueprinting or anything like that, because it can be very overwhelming because you want to fix everything all at once, or you want to only identify the things that you can solve in that moment. And by combining this idea of it's okay to have this creative ideation, but it's also important to have those limitations and then actually figure out what are you solving and how can you solve it in real life? Um, that's where the real magic happens, I think. So it was it was a cool way to describe it. So I was really happy that we had this discussion. It's just like life. Ask better questions. Boom. There it is again. Ask better <laughs> questions. What can not what can your co-host do for you? <laughs> oh, but what can you do for your co-host? <laughs> uh, well, the only thing we have to fear is Jeannie herself. <laughs> <laughs> Oh my goodness. Before we, you know, <laughs> Devol- do anything more <laughs> for famous quotes, uh, I think we should wrap it up. What do you think? <laughs> I'm sure our listeners would appreciate it at this point. Yes. <laughs> well, let us know what you thought about Ruben or any of our episodes. Actually, we'd love to hear from you. Thank you so much for listening to Crack the Customer Code. And if you haven't yet subscribed, come on, hit the button wherever you listen to podcasts. It's really, it's a great way to make sure that you get our newly released episodes, and you also receive our undying gratitude. I mean, that alone is pretty important, I think. So please help us out and do that. Crack the Customer Code is a proud member of C-Suite Radio, so be sure to check out all the great business content at csuiteradio.com, and there's also content at csuitetv.com. We so appreciate you spending your valuable time with us. I'm Jeannie Walters, and you can learn more about me and our trademarked customer experience investigation process and more at experienceinvestigators.com. And I'm Adam Tapork, and you can learn more about me and our customer service workshops, training, and my keynote speaking at customersatstick.com. Until next time, take care of yourself. And take care of your customers. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.